This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Just before we get started with the podcast today, I want to recommend another show that you might like. It's also from me. It's very much a sister podcast to the show you're listening to right now, The Casual Criminalist. It's called Decoding the Unknown, and it looks at some of history's greatest mysteries like what happened to the Mary Celeste, did a book predict the sinking of the Titanic, and what really happened to the Russian hikers in the Dial of Pass, and a whole lot more. Right now, there's one new episode a week on that podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and because it's from me, you know we're not going to be looking at those mysteries and being like, oh wow, it was ghosts, wasn't it? No, 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 we're going to try and figure out what actually happens. Like I say, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. It's called Decoding the Unknown. And now into today's show. Ah, hello there. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. Welcome, welcome, welcome today. Oh, we're doing someone in Italy, so I'm going to be absolutely butchering some Italian pronunciations all throughout this episode. You are so very welcome. Leonardo Cianzuili. Cianzuili. Si, Coretto. I don't know. The Cannibal of Correggio. Uh... Oh my god. Cannibalism as well. Brilliant. <laughs> this one's going to be an absolute laugh right between the pronunciations and the cannibalism, isn't it? What happens here is, uh, oh, this one. Uh, normally, of course, you hear me say, Callum has written today's script, but today's script is written by David. Occasional contributor to the casual criminal list. His last one was excellent, so he's contributed another, just so... Uh, Callum's fingers are bleeding less, which is which is nice. He said that his his finger scabs are recovering nicely. Of course, I'm going to read it, and then Jen afterwards is going to do some magic with the uh, video and audio. If you're uh, like, what, the video? What? This is a podcast. No, it's also available on YouTube. Yes, you can check it out. And if you're watching this on YouTube and you're like, I don't want to look at this guy's face. I just want to see the, I just want to listen to the audio version. Well, it's as a podcast as well. You're welcome, world. Yes, let's jump into it. It is the 17th of December, 1939, in the small town of Correggio, nestled in the Po River Valley of northern Italy. Great Britain, France, and Germany are already at war, but Mussolini has cynically kept Italy neutral for the time being. That's not going to last. We know how this goes. The entire nation of Italy is on edge with millions of people, even sub-devout fascists, not in favor of joining Hitler's war and spilling Italian blood for his conquest of Poland. Yet war seems inevitable and it lingers on everybody's mind. Amelinda Faustina Setti. Fingers crossed, David has included like a phonetic pronunciation guide, but I can't even get those right, so. <laughs> ah! A sweet old deer, aged 72, shuffles slowly up the Corso Carvor, just off the town center. A lifelong spinster, she has a square, somewhat masculine face, and that has long lost its vestiges of youth. Can we say spinster anymore? I feel like that's probably something that the PC police are like, ah, ah, unmarried lady is, or sorry, unmarried woman is uh, the correct use, not spinster. 
But this woman, I, I, I get the, maybe she's going to be a cannibal. So maybe we're okay to call her a spinster. Let's see. Oh no, this isn't her, is it? This is it, this is someone else. This is probably one of the victims. Oh no. Signora Seti arrives at the apartment building number 11. Her friend, Signora Norina Pansardi, lives on the third floor. As Signora Seti makes her way to the top of the stairs, her friend kisses her on both cheeks and utters her inside. They have some important business to discuss. This feels like the most Italian thing that has ever happened. They're like, mwah, mwah, come in, do my. God, I'm gonna stop because my Italian accent's so bad. But they're like, come inside and have some biscotti, yes? <laughs> this is what I imagine. There's a guy uh, super close to my office who runs like a, it's a shop that sells that delicious Italian bread. And he's always like, buongiorno. And I'm always like, buongiorno. And that's the extent of my Italian. And then I'm like, yeah, one focaccia bread, please. And he's like, it's a focaccia. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And then I enjoy the delicious focaccia bread. It's a great time. Fascinating story from your life, Simon. Thank you so much. Grazie. But one of these women is not who she seems. Signora Seti sits primly on an old but comfortable sofa, her nose in the air, while Signora Pensardi busies herself in the kitchen. Pansardi comes back bearing a cup of coffee and some biscuits for her friend, as was her custom on the old woman's many visits. Signora Pansardi, aged only 46, smiles through jagged teeth and a somewhat gnome-like face with an elongated, bulbous nose. She is a tiny woman, standing only 4 foot 11, wow, that is very small, and weighing roughly 110 pounds. The two women briefly discuss the prospect of warp. Signora Pensardi seems deeply concerned, as she has three sons of military age. Signora Seti, single and childless, does not seem concerned in the slightest. She has big plans, and she's leaving town. Seti had been coming to see Pansardi for some years now, as the latter was a respected town wise woman, palm reader, and astrologer. Definitely not someone who'd be respected by me, because uh, I don't know what a wise woman is, but I know that a palm reader and astrologer is basically like a witch. And not like in the let's burn them kind of witch, just like it's just nonsense. It's obviously bullshit that is just, just let's not do that. You're just conning people out of their money. I mean, maybe. They could also feel better because of it, and you know, because the placebo effect is real. But we should just get rid of this stuff, shouldn't we? This time, Pansardi had outdone herself. She found a husband for Signora Seti, an older man living in Pola, an Italian province bordering on Yugoslavia on the coast of the Adriatic Sea. Signora Seti, an incurable romantic who had sadly never found a husband, was going there to meet him. To avoid a scandal, the two women had agreed to keep the arrangement secret for now. As Signora Seti was illiterate, Signora Pansardi, who had a third-grade education, had helped her compose letters to her friends explaining the situation as soon as Signora Seti arrived in Pola. Seti had also signed over a power of attorney to Pensardi so her friends could manage her assets until Signora Seti could bring them over and begin her new life with her husband. Signora Seti took a sip of her coffee, her heart racing with excitement for what was about to happen next, a new life she was about to grasp at the late age of 72. Then, for some reason, she began to feel drowsy. She took another, another sip of coffee to wake herself up. Uh-oh. <laughs> the coffee isn't keeping you awake. Behind her, Signora Pensardi raised an axe. Holy shit. We're on to axe murder, and it is the top of page two. This is going to be a wild one, everybody. She brought it down with surprising ferocity and struck her friends on the neck. The blow nearly decapitated her with one stroke. Signora Seti's head now hung off the front of her torso by a thin layer of skin and sinew. Lovely, David. 
thanks. I was I had this beautiful image painted in my mind of these two like elderly like Italian women, or one's elderly, one's middle aged, like having some nice biscotti in their apartments. And now now one of their their heads is hanging on by a little bit of skin and a tendon. Lovely. Signor Pensardi ripped that off a friend's body and threw it in the sink. Holy shit, my dude. Meet Leonardo Cianculli. It's nice that there's the pronunciation guide now. It wasn't on the main title at the beginning, so I screwed that up. But now I know her name is Cianculli, which is kind of a cool name. Leonardo Cianculli was born on April the 18th, 1893. Some sources say 1894. Some people don't care. Me. In Montella, a small village in southern Italy, her father Mariano was a pleasant was a peasant cattle breeder. I was like, oh, he's a pleasant cattle breeder. That's nice. It's good that he's pleasant. We don't have an accurate record for her date of birth, but we do know that her father was a pleasant cattle breeder. No, he was a peasant. His wife Serafina was a widow with her two children from a previous marriage. Mariano and Serafina went on to have three more children together. It's rumored that Serafina was raped by a man possibly named Salvatore Denolfi. Because I just want to say that Salvatore, but apparently in Italian it's Salvatore. And the rape had gotten her pregnant with Leonardo. With it being Italy in the 1890s and being very, very Catholic, it goes without saying that abortion was very, very illegal. As such, Serafina was forced to have Leonardo and raise her as her own. Not, the, not that the devout Serafina would have contemplated anything to the contrary. Nevertheless, Serafina allegedly hated the baby that was born out of neither love nor marriage. As Leonardo grew up, her mother was verbally and physically abusive to the extreme. Leonardo was systematically treated worse by her mother than her other siblings. This is a super crazy situation. I mean, like, obviously it's not the kid's fault, but can you imagine if you have like a couple of kids and then one of them is also like from a situation where you were raped? That is going to be so confusing and troubling and yeah, obviously, Simon, well done for stating the obvious, you hero. Um, but yeah, that's intense. That's really intense. This is an intense episode. There's axe murder and rape with four paragraphs into page two, guys. Great. She told Leonardo that she had been brought into the world by the devil and that nothing but evil would come of her life. It did not help that Leonardo was epileptic. Among the Italian peasantry at the time, there was a superstition that seizures were a sign of demonic possession. Thus, in her mother's eyes, Leonardo was a foul, ungodly little creature. We do not know much about her adopted father's treatment of Leonardo, with her being the rape baby of another man, but we do know that Mariano Cianculli bestowed upon his adopted daughter the name of Nardina, a shortened, diminutive form of Leonardo, which implies affection. Leonardo's name itself she inherited from Mariano's father, Leonardo. Serafino, who hated her father-in-law, preferred to call her Narina. Leonardo's siblings, wanting to please both parents, simply called her Ina. Criminal psychologists would later theorize that Nardina and Narina were representative of two sides of Leonardo's split personalities. The Nardina side of her was gentler, worked harder, and suffered for her children. The Norina side was more aggressive, cruel, and took ruthless action to defend them. Evidently, Leonardo was deeply troubled and a depressed young girl. In a 700-page memoir melodramatically entitled Confessions of an Embittered Soul, which she later wrote while incarcerated, Leonardo claimed that she had tried to commit suicide multiple times in her youth. There's a quote, I tried twice to hang myself. Once they came in time to save me, and the other time the rope broke. My mother let me know that she was very sorry to see me alive. Oh my god. This... <laughs> Holy Again, like, it's another episode of The Casual Criminalist where parents are a piece of shit and they fuck up their children. Shocking. 
Once I swallowed two sticks with the intention of dying and ate some shards of glass, nothing happened. It is possible that these claims are a delusional lie. Since Leonardo had tried to hang herself twice with these same outcomes while she was imprisoned awaiting trial, in 1941. Much of her memoirs are unreliable because, if it hadn't become clear already, Leonardo Cianculli was off her f***ing nut. It wasn't exactly clear to me yet. She just seems like a troubled young girl, but, uh, I guess, uh, apparently, spoiler alert, she's off her f***ing nut. Her psychologist determines that severe childhood abuse from an overbearing mother led to narcissistic personality disorder with sadistic, schizoid, and paranoid tendencies. That sounds very complicated and very bad. A lack of motherly affection moreover led Leonardo, forming insecure attachments, antisocial behaviors, hostility toward other women, and a feeling of inferiority when which she tried to mask with grandiose behavior and claims. She presented herself to the world as a special person and related to other people by trying to dominate them. <laughs> it's always an attractive personality trait where it's like, oh, how am I going to make this person like me? I'm going to dominate them. I'm absolutely going to dominate the shit out of them. Oh, no. She tried to cultivate people's trust and took it as her due, but she did not empathize with others. She didn't view people as people, but only as objects, as prop pieces in the stage play of her own life. Interesting. Isn't it like, I always like, found that interesting, you know, like you're the main character in your life, but everyone else is the main character in all of their lives. Like most of you people listening, it's just like, I'm that podcast guy that you sometimes listen to, or that YouTube guy you sometimes watch, and you all have your own like lives going on out there and i have mine i don't know where i'm going with this but it is weird isn't it to think like there's everyone out there just all involved in their own stuff and here i am involved in mine and it's yeah it's just interesting isn't it the sinews of superstition there was another aspect to Leonardo's psychosis among the fairly illiterate Italian peasantry. It was a mixture of badly understood Catholicism, latent ancient Roman paganism, and more modern urban legends, all mixed into a single incoherent belief system. Despite being a devoutly Catholic nation, much of the peasant religiosity took on a decidedly more magical element, a belief in curses and witchcraft mixed with trash magazine-level astrology and carnival-grade fortune-telling. Yeah, this is weird. I think like also back in the day when things were really you know when it was just you know life was a bit rough like italia italy in this time is like, oh my god everyone we're all a bit fascist hitler's doing all sorts of stuff are we gonna have to war go to war our kids gonna have to go to war all of that kind of stuff and you just you know you're more likely to be like oh yeah please i want to look at some astrology for some good news for the future i want to believe that witches and magic spells are real because life sucks it's like really poorer countries typically are more religious right because they're like oh i gotta pray for things to get better while all the rich countries are like eh, pretty good getting fat right now everything's great <laughs> to take one simple crude and cheap anecdote for the sake of an example county country priests were occasionally uneducated and could not properly speak latin at one point in catholic mass the priest is supposed to bless the bread quoting jesus and uttering the words this is my body in Latin, this is supposed to translate to hoc est enim corpus mum, which some priests shorten to hoc est corpus, where the theory goes the priest using flawed dog Latin or the peasant crowd's mishearing or both slowly led some countryside parishioners to think that the phrase was shouting hocus pocus before magically turning bread into the body of Christ. I mean, I mean, essentially, that's that's what they're doing, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, that. 
Am I right thinking that in castles and they literally, the, it's a literal belief that that is that the bread is the body of Christ. It's not like representative of it. It actually, in the belief system, that is Christ's flesh, which is crazy and also like the sort of shit that you'd see in a magic show. So hocus pocus, abracadabra, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? By the late 17th century, magicians were shouting it to pull rabbits out of hats. Instead of a dead language used by tradition, Latin phrases began to take on the power of magical incantations for the peasantry, just as they do in every shitty horror movie released in the last 70 years. Preach. Preach. Some horror movies are so... But there are good horror movies. Like The Ring, I think is one of the stat that... Ah, uh, uh, God, who was in that movie? The super famous blonde lady. Naomi. I don't remember. But that movie is scary. That's one of the scariest. Like, I remember seeing that. I must have been like a teenager, like early teens. And I remember watching that movie and then being scared of televisions. Like, oh God, what if I watch that ring thing? Then I'll die in seven days. What if I wake up and it's on my TV in the night? It was scary. Leonardo Cianculli was a sucker for this sort of pseudo-religious magical hogwash when she was a young girl. She is said to have visited a gypsy fortune teller who told her that she would marry and have children, but that all her children would die. Oh my god, <laughs> savage random gypsy woman. <laughs> it's like, why not just lie? It's all nonsense anyway. Why not just be like, you're going to live a brilliantly happy life and all the fortunes of the world are going to fall upon you? Rather than like, yeah, yeah, yeah you're going to have loads of kids and they're all going to die. I mean, they're all going to die eventually, of course. It's depressing. Um, but, like, why not just lie? She was also told that she would either wind up in prison or an insane asylum. Oh, my God. You savage. Apparently, Leonardo took this warning to heart. But seeing as we only have her memoirs as evidence for this encounter, it could quite likely just be one of Leonardo's bullshit stories. Something to sex up the events of her life by making them seem fated in the stars. In 1912, a 19-year-old Leonardo was arrested and convicted of theft. Her overall reputation in Mondello was that of a local troublemaker. Yet, in fairness, growing up with a mother who literally called her devil spawn and treated her like trash, well, it couldn't have been easy. In fact, her mother's insults may well have made Leonardo's criminal behavior a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I mean, while well, she definitely had some part in her daughter being a uh, mega f up, so yeah, as we always say, casual criminalist, don't up your kids please come on it's not necessary nevertheless in 1917 at the age of 24 leonardo experienced a glimpse of happiness she met a man named Raphael, and the uh, pronunciation guide here says ninja turtles familiar thank you pansardi who worked as a clerk in the registry office yet even this chance of a happy life was spoiled by her mother in prison leonardo wrote i met my husband and fell madly in love with him my mother opposed our marriage because she wanted to give me to her nephew oh it's like i've met this wonderful man yeah yeah yeah. no how about how about how about instead instead of that instead of marrying that guy what about incest right yeah good huh i got married anyway and my mother flew a, threw a curse on me Serafina Cianculli thereafter served all, severed all re relations with her daughter. While the exact nature of the curse, if there was one that wasn't because curses aren't real, is not known. Her mother's final rejection had a profoundly damaging impact on Leonardo, one that she would not shake for the rest of her life. <laughs> Someone on Twitter the other day was like, Simon, uh, I was listening to your podcast, and it's like, I don't care, I've seen a ghost. And I just tried, no you haven't. <laughs> Ghosts aren't real. And it was, people were like, mostly simon's correct but then of course they do because they follow me on twitter i'm like extremely skeptical but uh people some people were like yeah yeah well how do you explain it so, i don't know 
I'm not even trying to explain it, but it's not a ghost, is it? <laughs> and it's, if it ever could be, it's oh, no, another brilliant one was like, uh, Simon, why as if the paranormal is explained by science? And I'd be like, well, great, then it's real. It's not paranormal anymore, is it? It's just normal. And it, great, science rules, simple. I look forward to that happening. If, if, someone, if, science, if someone scientifically proves ghosts, I'll be like, that is seriously cool. Nice job. As Raphael and Leonardo Pansardi settled in Montella for a long and happy marriage, it's not going to be very happy because all of her children are going to die, according to that crazy witch at the fair. Leonardo was arrested again in 1919 for threatening someone with a knife. Two years later, the couple moved to Raphael's hometown of Loria, a small medieval town just above the toe of Italy's boot. Here, Leonardo gained a reputation of a whore who would sleep with any man who showed her the slightest interest, who ignored the authority and commands of her husband, and as a notorious conwoman who posed as a spiritualist, she began a fortune-telling racket to bilk people out of their hard-earned cash. In 1927, Leonardo was convicted for fraud after conning a local peasant woman out of two months' wages and was fined and given ten months in prison. Her defense attorney tried and failed to get her a plea of insanity. During this same disreputable and turbulent period, Leonardo was trying to desperately have children. Of her 17 pregnancies, three ended in miscarriages, and a whopping 10 of her children died in infancy. Oh my god, the, pez, the, the crazy witch doctor woman was right. According to Leonardo, it was only through the magic exercised by a local witch that allowed her to have children and protected them as they grew up. In total, Leonardo's, Leonardo had four children who survived, three boys and a girl. And in Leonardo's mind, this was entirely due to mystical forces. All right, well, her mind's entitled to think whatever she thinks. I mean, it's wrong, but uh, whatever, who cares? Thus, in addition to the abuse she suffered at the hands of her mother in childhood, Leonardo suffered a harsh downpour of trauma as she lost child after child in her 20s and 30s. An already mentally unstable mind with a plethora of personality disorders was pushed closer and closer to the breaking point. And to give herself some illusion of control, she dug herself deeper and deeper into the occult. As Leonardo herself puts it, quote, I could not bear the loss of another child. Almost every night I dreamed of the small white coffins swallowed one after the other by the black earth. For this, I studied magic. I read the books that talk about palm reading, astrology, spells, hexes, and spiritualism. I wanted to learn everything about curses to be able to neutralize them. While dabbling in astrology, tarot cards, and LARPing as witchy-poo Wiccans may be a harmless enough pastime for bored housewives and moody teenagers, this cocktail of superstition was the final nail in the coffin for Leonardo's sanity. She came to believe in increasingly bizarre things which in turn would lead her to commit some of the most heinous acts in order to protect, protect her surviving children. Oh god, is she eating people because she's crazy? I mean, of <laughs> there's a statement. Are you eating people because you're crazy? No, 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 I'm totally sane. I just love eating people. Of course, if you're eating people, you're crazy. But is she eating people because she thinks it's going to be like part of some spell that's going to protect her children? Because that is so, like, <laughs> no. The Witch of Corrigio. Once Leonardo was released from prison, she and Raphael hastily moved to the tiny village of Lacedonia, also in southern Italy, for a fresh start. Not long afterwards, on July the 23rd, 1930, an earthquake struck the region, causing 1,400 deaths and obliterating the Pensardi's home. From there, the family picked up sticks and headed north to the other side of the country to settle in Correggio. Leonardo's husband, Raphael, got another job as a clerk in the Correggio registry office, earning a very modest wage that barely provided for his wife and family. To supplement the family's income, Leonardo set up a fairly successful furniture and clothing business, and as a, 
as a sideline and of course she also offered palm reading and astrology to her more gullible customers it's like yeah yeah what are you here for yeah i need a new couch great uh you want any palm reading with that any little bit of astrology you interested in the taurus the 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 the, the tangents of mars and mercury i can help you out with that no no just just the sofa <laughs> thanks you crazy woman meanwhile leonardo's reputation in carigio evolved to be dr drastically different than that in previous towns she was respected among the townsfolk leonardo may have been considered eccentric in her beliefs and behaviors but she was also thought to be charming and mysterious she was a sage a wise woman with strange powers that were barely understood <laughs> they're not real an image that leonardo did everything to encourage she was admired for how she doted on her children she was well liked considered reliable and was trusted with the town folks personal secrets people frequently stopped by her place where she told them entertaining stories plied them with coffee and pastries and lent them a sympathetic ear she broke the tedium of people's humdrum small town lives by giving them exciting prophecies about their futures she provided crackpot remedies and invoked gibberish spells which as far as the town folk and the placebo effect were concerned well they seem to work because the placebo effect is super powerful there's that famous study where they give people like the white pills and the red pills and the red pills don't do anything uh, but still oh, well, neither of them do anything but somehow the red pills are more effective in treating the condition and the condition wasn't like depression or like anxiety or something like that you know like a very a, a mental disorder uh it was like pneumonia and some other people on the red pills got better it's amazing <laughs> placebo effect it's why people believe in witches and shit. Leonardo was also admired of Crosstown for being an enthusiastic and devoted fascist. Brilliant. But apparently, Raphael did not share the town's admiration for his wife. He gradually fell into alcoholism to cope with, the li with life married to this temperamental and often violent madwoman. And after two decades of marriage, he abandoned his wife altogether. While I would never advocate a husband abandoning his family, in this case, it might be fair to say that this poor bugger got out while the going was good. Meanwhile, Leonardo's four surviving children had grown up to fairly promising young people. Her eldest son was studying literature at the University of Milan. Her second son was conscripted in the army. Her third son was just finishing up high school. Only her young daughter was still in childhood and was away being educated by local nuns now at first i'm like ah husband what about the kids you can't just leave your crazy wife you've got to think about the kids and it seems okay well three of them are left home and one of them is like a nun boarding school or whatever so okay okay less judgment for escaping the crazy lady now by and large after much tragedy and family turmoil and a number of criminal offenses leonardo leonardo might have wound up spending the rest of her days as a relatively harmless village quack and petty con woman but then the war came hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price Got your happy price, price line. Just before we continue with today's episode, let me tell you about today's wonderful sponsor, Simply Safe. If you've ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there's no better time than now. This week, our friends at Simply Safe are giving you guys, casual criminalist listeners, early access to their Black Friday deals. 50% off their award-winning home security. That is a big discount. You can't not love Simply Safe because it's got everything you need to make your home safe. Indoor and outdoor cameras comprehensive sensors all monitored round the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it which is perfect i feel like simply safe is such a good integration for a true crime show because 
all of the shows like there are horrible people out there in the world who are committing crimes against regular people you listener probably a regular person so you should have simply safe it was even named the best home security system of 2021 by us news and world report you can easily customize the system for your home online in minutes and even get free custom recommendations from Simply Safe, which is perfect because, yeah, I don't know, everyone's got specific homes and specific issues and specific things. They will guide you. They will give you recommendations based on your requirements. These are Simply Safe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. No long term contracts, no commitments. It's really easy to just start feeling a bit safer have a little bit extra peace of mind so take advantage of simply safe's early black friday deals get 50 percent off your new home security system by visiting simplysafecom casual again that's simplysafecom casual for 50 percent off your entire system and now back to today's episode thank you simply safe body armor by blood ritual when the German army marched into Poland in September 1939, many in Europe thought that Mussolini might declare war and join Hitler immediately. The two dictators had grown increasingly close in their goals over the past three years. There were many similarities to their ideologies and how they governed their nations, but Mussolini never had an overwhelming sense of fondness or loyalty for Hitler, nor the Nazi ideology that positioned Italians as an inferior race. Surprise, surprise. The guy who thinks you're an inferior race is not your best friend. <laughs> brilliant and shocking so Mussolini hung back waiting and watching only intending to strike at the Allies should the Germans look on the verge of victory then Mussolini might quickly gobble up a few new possessions in Africa and the Mediterranean islands to the wider Italian population however aided by harsh anti-British and anti-French propaganda it seemed like war could break out at any time this sends leonardo into a mental breakdown she had already lost 10 children in infancy and three to miscarriages to her mind it was only her tireless exercise of spells and the occult that kept her remaining children safe i mean yes like isn't that is that confirmation bias where because something keeps happening you're like oh yeah it must keep happening or it sounds more like ocd you know where it's like oh yeah i've been doing these curses so nothing bad's gonna happen because nothing bad has happened but i have to keep doing the curses or something bad will happen that's nonsense she's got like witch ocd but strangely she didn't seem to give much of a damn about them most of her concern was for her eldest son her absolute favorite he was studying in milan he might be vulnerable to army conscription leonardo felt certain that if he were to fight he would die according to leonardo's memoirs the premonition was reinforced by her nightmares she dreamt constantly of her abusive mother serafina Cianculli, whom leonardo had last seen 22 years before her mother appeared to her night after night and told leonardo that her son would die unless leonardo committed a blood sacrifice in order to protect him you know typical mother-daughter advice on child rearing at any rate recurrent nightmares and mounting anxiety for the first three months of the second world war clearly caused leonardo to have some sort of psychotic break given what came next sounds like she's already quite broken so this is just gonna be i imagine it's gonna be pretty intense Leonardo wrote in her memoirs that she was also heavily influenced in her thinking by Greco-Roman mythology. She bore in mind the story of Thetis, goddess of the sea, who had dipped her son Achilles in the river Styx to make him invincible, though perhaps this reference was cooked up later to make the acts of murder and desecration of a corpse sound more educated and palatable. I mean, making the desecration of a corpse more palatable? I don't know if that's really possible. 
I mean, I guess you could just be like, well, no, it was an autopsy, technically desecrating a corpse, but also a totally valid medical thing. So, okay, yeah, why not? Which brings us back to December the 17th, 1939, and the final moments of Emma Linda Faustina Setti. Oh, the woman being murdered by an axe. Oh, we went back in time. Of course we did. She was in there. They were in that apartment having some biscuits and And then we went back and explored this woman's whole horrible childhood. Blood biscuits. The martyr was sipping the coffee. I raised this quote, by the way. <laughs> I didn't personally raise any axes. I raised the axe. I mean, other than for chopping wood. I think I worked like a thunderbolt. I think my strength tripled. Otherwise, I could not have done what I did. Leonardo brought the axe down on her friend's neck and nearly decapitated her with one stroke. An impressive act for such a tiny middle-aged woman. Yeah, although axes are pretty heavy. Like I'm like, I'm not exactly the strongest man in the world. Uh, it's an understatement. But I could chop a big old block of wood in half with an axe, because an axe is heavy. You put it on the chopping thing, you swing the axe down, boom, splits in two. Easy. Leonardo then walked around the sofa to the front of the torso, the top of which was at first pumping and then oozing blood. She gripped the head with both hands and wrenched it free. Oh my god. Ugh. That's one of those, I don't know, like one of those uh, nails on chalkboards, like the 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 idea the, the 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 tendon and the skin kind of tearing off as to why are we talking about this more it's just making me feel more unpleasant <laughs> let's just move on she went to the kitchen and tossed it in the sink coming back into the sitting room leonardo grabbed the corpse and dragged it across the floor leaving a trail of blood on the old wooden beams until she reached a closet and shoved the body inside she lent signora setti's torso over a large basin and proceeded to make a series of small strategic cuts in the body to speed up the draining of the woman's blood. While the sofa, floors, and sitting area already looked like someone had popped a water balloon filled with red paint, there was roughly two or three liters of blood left in the body for future use. Uh, I'm the future use there is in quotation marks, so I'm assuming this was from her creepy ass memoirs. Like, why aren't you saving the but? Bo- why are you saving? The blood in the body. What are you saving that for? <laughs> you weirdo. Leonardo went back into the kitchen. I cut the head that I had laid in the sink, but no blood came out. Evidently, the blood left in Signora Setti's head that hadn't drained onto the floor of the sitting area had already seeped out into the sink. Leonardo went back to the closet. The basin was nearly full. With a large knife, she cut into the body's flesh. She broke the bones with a large hammer. Leonardo proceeded to cut off the body's arms and legs. The legs she split in two at the knee to reduce their length, and then she proceeded to cut out the woman's pelvis from the rest of the torso. Will it blend? That is the question. (laughs) I just don't like this. After a lifetime of experience dealing with fresh slabs of meat from the butcher when cooking for her family, apparently it took Leonardo no more than 12 minutes to fully dismember Signora Setti's corpse. Oh my god, what are you up to? That's insane. Just like, just making quick work of it, absolutely no, no pause. Just like, you know, it'd be like me cutting up a chicken to put it in the oven. A bosh, bosh, you know, using the cleaver, easy does it. But, you know, with a giant human body. This is not nice at all. I threw the pieces into a pot, added 7 kilograms of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and stirred it all until the dissected body parts dissolved into a dark and sticky pulp, with which I filled some buckets and I emptied into a nearby septic tank. Caustic soda, otherwise known as lye, is made of the chemical sodium hydroxide. It is able to turn animal proteins into liquid. It burns rather quickly through flesh. 
That scene in Fight Club where Brad Pitt throws a chemical on Ed Norton's hands and makes him hold it there as it disfigures his skin. Well, yes, that's caustic soda. Oh, so really horrible stuff. Why can you just buy this? <laughs> I feel like the benefit of selling caustic soda so people can make homemade soap is outweighed by the negative of when it can be used to dispose of bodies and physically disfigure people. As such, it is often used to break down roadkill by animal disposal professionals and has been used by a number of murderers on corpses to speed up their decomposition. Again, it's like pros and cons, right? Should we sell it so we can decompose landfill? Yes. Does the uh, ability to decompose bodies outweigh that benefit? Also, yes. Uh, or maybe we can just sell it and we can track all the people who are buying it. And look, if you, it's like the, uh, the diesel and... Uh, diesel and uh, the fertilizer ammonium nitrate if you if you're buying large quantities of ammonium nitrate whoever your local fbi is or if you're american the fbi they're gonna be on to you they're gonna be like that guy just bought a lot of ammonium nitrate and he ain't a farmer so let's just figure out is he buying lots of is it diesel or petrol i really shouldn't be giving bomb making instructions on this podcast but i feel like this is a fairly commonly known one um in fact there was a there was a fiction book i read about this even, I was a kid. It was a kids' fiction book, and it always stuck with me. And I can't remember the name of it, but it was about it was about these Australian teenagers who they're on some trip into the outback or whatever, just camping, and then they come back, and Australia's been been invaded by some mystery force. There was a bad movie made with this as well later, and I watched it, and I was like, oh, this isn't as enjoyable as when I was a teenager. But they make a giant bomb out of uh fertilizer and they use it to blow up this invading enemy it's a really good it's more than a book it's like a whole series i enjoyed the crap out of it when i was a kid i'm sure now it'd be a bit like i don't know whenever i watch tv shows with teenagers i'm like oh it's a bit cringe isn't it can't we watch a tv show with adults because i'm not a teenager anymore i just want to see adults doing stuff rather than teenage because all of their problems seem so small <laughs> like This is what we worry about when we're kids? Oh, oh, I see. Oh. What are we talking about? I'm so lost. We are on a massive tangent. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's also fairly easy to obtain without drawing suspicion. Oh, yeah, I'm saying we should track people who are buying caustic soda. And if they're not roadkill disposal experts, we should uh, maybe just make sure they're not serial killers. You know? Like, FBI could get on that. It's also fairly too, too easy to obtain without drawing suspicion. When heated to 100 to 300 degrees Celsius, it can melt most human flesh into a thick, dark soup. Okay. Damn, David, we are giving away tips on disposing of bodies today. I'm going to get in trouble. So what are we doing? Well, we're giving tips on how not to get caught and bomb-making instructions and uh, also how to dispose of bodies. Speaking of the FBI looking into people... <laughs> Uh, later police testimony indicates that the neighbors uh, were briefly aware of the foul smell coming from Leonardo's apartment, but they largely ignored it, and it soon went away. From there, Leonardo set about cleaning the blood off her clothes, the kitchen counters, and did her best aggressively, aggressively scrubbing bloodstains out of the wooden floors. What she could not remove, she covered up with rugs from her furniture business. She then set about the task of reupholstering her sofa, the bones she would later toss into a nearby canal. When Signora Setti's blood in the basin had fully coagulated, Leonardo brought it into the kitchen. Why let such a thing go to waste? Uh, uh, oh god, she's gonna eat it. I forgot this episode's called about being a cannibal. She's gonna drink the blood or some crazy shit, isn't she? Oh god. And all I can think now about the uh about her like throwing the bones in the canal is all i can think about is the will it blend guy <laughs> on youtube because i'm a terrible person i'm like well she used the caustic soda to turn it into a soup i wonder if those bones will blend you know the the biter tech guy or whatever it's called he's got the blender and he's like you know he's really impressed with this blender and what it can blend like phones and shit. 
And now I'm just thinking about whether it would grind. Oh, God, what is wrong with you, fact boy? Come on. I gathered the blood like it was jam, she later wrote. I dried it in the oven, ground it, and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate milk, and eggs, as well as a little margarine. Mixing everything together, I made a large number of crunchy pasties, pastries and served them to the ladies who came to visit. But my son, Giuseppe, and I ate them too. Oh my god, it's like a Roald Dahl novel, isn't it? Evidently, Leonardo also gave out some of these pastries to the local children, which no doubt made her very popular. She thought that by eating the pastries, the blood ritual would protect the children just as this gruesome act had protected the life of her own kids. Oh yeah, I totally forgot she's doing this because she's delusional. I mean, obviously, but that this sort of weird witchy shit is protecting her kids. Oh no. As far as Leonardo was concerned, she later wrote, she was simply dipping the neighborhood children into the river Styx. Is this woman crazy enough to avoid prison? Uh, I guess we will find out. And uh, by avoid prison, I mean spend the rest of her life in a mental hospital. Additionally, according to one confession Leonardo made to the police a few weeks after her arrest, she claimed to have used some of her friend's meat for cooking as well. Uh, let's, I, I don't know, David, if the right word for a human's flesh is meat. <laughs> I think it's flesh. Her friend's flesh for cooking as well. <laughs> her friend's meat. It just doesn't sound right. Uh, roasting, stewing, and boiling the human flesh before consuming it. But it is difficult to tell whether this confession is true. Nevertheless, given Leonardo seemed perfectly happy to make blood biscuits, eat them, and then hands out the rest to the neighborhood, it's not unreasonable to think that she would not let the rest of her friends go to waste. A few days later, Leonardo sent her son Giuseppe. Is that how you say that name? Giuseppe? Maybe it's Giuseppe. Uh, si, uh, Coretto. Out of town to mail Signora Setti's letters back to Correggio to her various acquaintances. In those letters, Setti explained that she had moved to Pola, where she planned to be married and had kept things secret in order to avoid a scandal. Of course, there was no husband waiting for her in Pola. This was all a lie concocted by Leonardo. Yeah, obviously, and also the least bad thing she did. And when you're lying to someone to get them to move to another town because there's a fake husband waiting for them, that's a pretty bad thing to do. But uh, making biscuits out of their blood? It's worse. It's definitely worse. Meanwhile, it'd be like, yeah, she's going to prison. She's, she's in court. It's like, what's she in court for? Well, murder, cannibalism, fraud. <laughs> Meanwhile, the cannibal of Correggio pocketed 30,000 lira of Signora Setti's savings, which the old woman had been carrying with her in preparation for her move across the country. Whoa, I don't know how much, how much money is that? Oh, okay. This works out as approximately 25,000 US dollars. Not a bad payout for a day's work. No, definitely not. But also, why? Oh, I guess, okay. Because she was moving to a new town. Isn't, I feel like there's a more secure way to do that. Didn't they have checks in the past? The cannibal strikes again. Given the grim nature of the events described above, I'll wager that you groaned inwardly or outwardly when you saw the next title card. <laughs> I have to say, I just read it as I do title cards because I don't usually comment on the title card, so I just kind of tuned it out. But it does say the cannibal strikes again. <laughs> Says that oh, brilliant. Let's, she's up in her kill count. But if Leonardo had stopped at one blood sacrifice, she certainly wouldn't be as notorious in criminal history. Moreover, and perhaps more importantly, if she had stopped at one victim, it's likely she would have never been caught. It is September the 5th, 1940. Germany has knocked France out of the war, and Mussolini, sensing an opportunity to sit at the peace table with minimal loss, declared war on June the 10th. But the war was not going well for Mussolini against the British in the Egyptian desert or in Ethiopia. In fact, it was an unmitigated disaster. The Italian army simply wasn't yet properly equipped to go to war, and they were badly led by an incompetent officer corps. Whether these fortunes played a role in Leonardo's decision-making or not, the women had concluded that it was time to make another blood sacrifice. Francesca Clementina Soavi, age 55, was a kindergarten teacher from a local school in Correggio. She was single, poor, and without many people 
in the town to miss her. Like the first victim, I feel like if you're a kindergarten teacher, aren't you going to know all the other kindergarten teachers? Teachers, and aren't all the kids going to be like, "Where's Mrs. What was her name? Soavi? Where'd she go? Oh, sorry, Miss Soavi. Where'd she go? She's dead. Someone's going to notice. Maybe this is where she gets caught. Uh, like her first victim, Signora Soavi had been coming to Leonardo for several years for guidance, for a sympathetic ear, for the occasional fortune telling, and to be honest, just plain old simple companionship. She couldn't have chosen a worse person. Yeah, I mean, not only is she eating those blood biscuits, but I get the feeling she's going to get murdered. Leonardo had lied to Suavi that she had found her a well-paying job at a girls' boarding school in Piacenza, a city not far from Greggio in northern Italy. This would have provided the teacher with a more stable income, and Piacenza's larger population might even offer the possibility of finally finding a husband. Of course, there was no job in Piacenza. It was all alive. An experienced conwoman, Leonardo, had convinced Suavi to write postcards to friends and co-workers, apologizing for leaving suddenly, but to avoid making her final destination known until she was firmly in the job. If, if that was me, I'd be like mad suspicious. I was like, this seems very specific. It sounds like the sort of thing I'd, I'd write if I wanted people to, if I really wanted to disappear permanently and no one ever found me. You know? These biscuits taste really weird. <laughs> In reality, this would prevent anyone from knowing where to start should people begin looking for her. Signora Suavi also signed over a power of attorney so Leonardo could handle her affairs back in Correio when she got settled. Leonardo wrote, Suave gave the key to her house to Marta Ferrari, no relation, and told her to give it to me because she was leaving. Um, yeah, that's super intense. And then it, I, I'd always, I'd already be suspicious after, after, um, you know, writing those postcards about me essentially going missing. And then she's like, yeah, I also want your house and uh, your power of attorney. Yeah, no, not not any specific power of attorney. Just sweeping. I want to conduct all of your legal affairs. Um. I'd be extremely suspicious of that. Leonardo poured the doomed schoolmistress some wine and they clinked glasses in celebration of her opportunity and new life in the big city. Naturally, the wine was drugged. While Signora Soavi fell into a stupor, her eyes glazing over and her vision turning blurry, Leonardo struck her with the axe. A familiar pattern played itself out. Decapitation, head in the sink, torso dragged to the closet, blood drained in a large basin, arms, legs, pelvis, and torso dismembered with a large knife and a hammer, legs split in two, all within 12 minutes. These specific timings must be coming from her, like, creepy memoirs, right? That is incredibly fast. Flesh thrown into a pot and boiled with caustic soda, when it became a foul-smelling soup poured into a septic tank for later disposal. Bones chucked into the nearby canal, blood co congealed into a jelly, dried in the oven, then ground into powder, and baked into pastries to feed the neighborhood. Possibly prime cuts of meat preserved for roasting, stewing, or boiling for dinner. Cleanup performed, bloodstained fabrics washed or replaced, stubborn bloodstains on the wood floor covered with throw rugs, a foul smell briefly emitted from the apartments. Then Signora Suave was gone erased from the earth. Leonardo sent her son Giuseppe to Piangenza to mail postcards to Suave's friends and acquaintances. She meanwhile, does this son know what's up? Because that's pretty suspicious. That's pretty suspicious. He's like, mm, and, and also these biscuits taste weird. She meanwhile told, I feel like a good merch item would be these biscuits taste weird. <laughs> like a t-shirt. These biscuits taste weird. Oh, God. Meanwhile, she sold all of Suave's belongings and pocketed roughly 3,000 lira in cash, only about $2,500 in modern US currency. Not the best payout for the effort expended, but Suave was poor, and Leonardo, a woman of modest means herself, found that living in wartime, she needed all the help 
that she could get. But the school teacher hadn't kept her move to Piangenza completely secret from everyone like Leonardo had instructed. She had told one of her neighbors. When Signora Suabi didn't turn up at Piangenza and did not respond to her mail, this raised a few eyebrows. But unfortunately, it was wartime. Hundreds of people were dying every day, and amid all that chaos and death, who had time to worry about one impoverished and lonely schoolteacher. An Italian soap opera. On September the 23rd, 1940, a little over three weeks since the last murder, Virginia Cacioppo made her way up the Corsicava to number 11 and walked up the stairs to the third floor where the cannibal of Correggio was waiting for her. Signora Cacioppo was 59 and a retired soprano who had studied at the Milan Conservatory and made her debut as a beautiful and talented opera singer in 1904. I don't think I'm telling Dales out of school when I say that Italians love opera, and Virginia was once renowned and venerated nationwide, performing for some of Italy's top conductors. As Virginia aged, however, the singing job slowly dried up and went to younger, more beautiful sopranos with fresher-sounding voices and tantalizingly new reputations to drawing crowds. As such, Signora Cacioppo fell on harder times. She settled in Correggio with her sister, but evidently felt wounded that her career had come to an end. Worse still, she was unmarried and lacked that extra means of support as she stared down the gun barrel of retirement. It was Virginia's yearning for her glory days in the opera that Leonardo exploited to the full in order to lure the ex-soprano into the same vulnerable position that had killed the two other women. There's a magical job waiting for you somewhere on the other side of Italy where you're going to go and write postcards about being very generic about where you're going and not telling anyone. And I'm definitely not going to kill you, and those biscuits taste fine. Leonardo concocted some cock and bull story about how she had found Virginia a job in Florence. She would be the secretary of a theatre impresario, which in the opera world is similar to the job of a Hollywood producer involving the financing and organization of the actual shows. It was a respectable position, and being secretary to such a man kept Virginia in the opera life, kept her in money, and was better than nothing. To put a cherry on the cake, Leonardo said, it was likely Virginia could marry this man, an idea that was even more tempting. Above all else, Leonardo instructed Virginia to keep the job a secret. Why? <laughs> oh my god. I guess it, this is the thing. It's like, obviously, when we read this from a dispassionate perspective, not dispassionate, that's the wrong word, um, from like a uh, removed position where you're not emotionally invested in what's going on. I mean, other than being an observer. But if you're in this woman's position of like relative desperation, like she really wants her career back, she doesn't have much money, things are not going well. When an offer comes along, it can be really tempting to look, uh, like overlook all the things that are wrong with it and just be like, yes, please. Yes, please, I really need that. And obviously, that's why it's called exploitation, isn't it? The rest you can probably predict. Virginia Cacioppo came over on the day of her supposed departure for Florence. The hopeful ex-opera singer was drugged, decapitated, and dismembered her blood drained into a basin and left to congeal. All signs of her murder were cleaned up as best as possible. But here's the thing you might not have expected. When Leonardo threw the pieces of Virginia's corpse into the pot, added the caustic soda, and started to boil it, for some reason she became enamored with the quality of the opera singer's flesh and decided to make soap out of it. Oh, God. I think we got another one to add to our list of rules for criminals. Don't make soap out of your victims. Not a good idea. Leonardo later wrote, It noticed it, noticed not she, but it. Oh, wow. Okay. It ended up in the pot, like the other two. Its flesh was fat and white. When it was dissolved, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long boil, creamy bars of soap resulted from it. I gave some to neighbors, and oh my god. Oh. Oh. 
and acquaintances. With regret, I observed that the soap was not perfect because I had to add some ash to it. It is true that Signora Cacioppo, with all due respect and rest her soul, had gained a little extra weight in middle age, so it is highly likely that Leonardo was not completely deluded, and indeed her fat would have made for decent soap. Oh my god, we don't need to know that, David. No. It felt, I felt so creepy writing that sentence. Yes, David, I felt so creepy reading it. Do we have to? <laughs> Furthermore, Signora Catropo's proclivity for self-indulgence left her blood sugar levels slightly more elevated than the other two women, which is another thing Leonardo observed. The pastries were even better. The woman was really sweet. Oh, good God. This is some skin-crawling shit today. God damn. So this time, the neighborhood children got to enjoy top-quality pastries, and some of the old ladies who visited Leonardo's were gifted with fine-smelling soap out of the goodness of her heart. I can only imagine the shock those ladies must have felt when they learned that they'd been washing themselves with a perfumed chunk of fat sliced off an ex-opera singer. Leonardo's son, Giuseppe, was duly sent out of town to send some misleading letters. Leonardo, meanwhile, managed to rob 50,000 lira off of uh, Virginia Catropo's savings. That is the equivalent to roughly $41,000 today. That's a lot of money, her biggest payday yet. Furthermore, Leonardo had sold Catropo's many belongings, jewels, furs, dresses, shoes, and even some small bank bonds. The problem was this. If you murder a spinster old lady of 72 who allegedly moves to Poland to get married, nobody really looks for her. If you murder a single school teacher who gets another job in another city that disappears during the biggest war that the world has ever seen, she might be overlooked. But murder a former celebrity who is well known within the town, well, people are going to start to talk. Excellent. I just, it's disappointing that we have to get to the stage of people starting to talk before this is solved rather than like, I don't know, crimes being solved earlier than gossip. The Investigation Like Signora Soavi, Virginia Catropo had not followed her murderer's instructions to the letter. She had told her sister that she was going to Florence to work as a secretary for a theatre in Presario. But luckily for Leonardo, Virginia did not tell her sister, who had set up this arrangement. Between October 1940 and the start of 1941, rumors flew across Correggio. It was quickly established that Virginia Catropo had never made it to Florence and was, in fact, missing. With a bit of digging, it was also established that the job, the impresario, and the theatre itself did not exist. Virginia's sister, Signora Albertina Fanti, immediately suspected Leonardo. Albertina knew that the cannibal was friendly with all three women who had gone missing over the past year. She knew that her sister had visited Leonardo shortly before she disappeared. And so, Signora Albertina Fanti did the sensible thing and went to the cops. This will be the one story you hear all decade where the literally fascist police are actually the good guys. You know it's a bad time when the, uh, the fascists are the good guys in the story. <laughs> But when their opponent is an insane cannibal, it is a bit of a toss-up. Yeah, insane cannibal or fascist police. Ah, uh, You can't decide. I mean, I mean, you can. In this story, the fascists are the good guys. <laughs> like you say, you never say that. Never say that. You didn't see anything. The police went round to number 11, Gorsa Cavour, and questioned Leonardo. She flatly and angrily denied any involvement in Virginia Catropo's disappearance. In fact, Leonardo became so belligerent and menacing that the police briefly had her arrested. But there was nothing really tying Leonardo to the opera singer's disappearance. Moreover, she was a tiny woman, a 4 foot 11 and 110 pounds. How could she have brought down a heavyset woman like Virginia and disposed of the body? I don't know, police. Maybe with a weapon? Like an axe? I don't surprise it's like of course i could kill i don't know like the rock of course i could if i had a gun or an axe and he wasn't looking any other time he'd absolutely destroy me because he's about seven times as big as me 
It's like, why? of course, what are you talking about? Although I do imagine if you just shot someone like The Rock, he'd just keep coming. You know, is it is it in that movie, Fast and Furious? He gets shot and he just keeps coming? Just, I find that entirely realistic. <laughs> Police Commissioner Serrao then took up the case of looking for Virginia Cachopo, and he appears to have been worth his salt. Serrao traced the serial numbers on a bank bond that belonged to the opera singer to a man who had recently cashed it, a priest named Adelmo Frattini. When questioned, the police said that he had received it from a man named Abelardo Spinabelli during some petty commerce. Spinabelli, meanwhile, was a friend of Leonardo's and said that he received it from her in repayment of a debt. Serrao initially suspected all three people were in cahoots, along with Leonardo's son, Giuseppe Pansardi, who had been identified sending Virginia's letters from out of town. The priest and Spinabelli were quickly ruled out. That left Leonardo and her son as suspects in Virginia Catchopo's murder. Police tossed over Leonardo's apartment and found bloodstains under the rugs and furniture, along with some of the personal effects of Catchopo, Suave, and Seti. The police also found Signora Seti's dentures. That is a bad sign. There's blood on the floor and there's dentures in the cupboard that belong to a victim. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Guilty! Judge Simon has rules. That's enough for me take her to the gallows. Leonardo and Giuseppe were arrested and charged in March 1941, or we could arrest and charge them, stupid justice system. Leonardo was initially quite reticent during police investigations. Serrao at first suspected the murders had been committed in order to rob the woman. It was only when Leonardo realized that her son Giuseppe might go down for the three murders that she started to talk, and once she did, it didn't stop, and boy howdy! Did she have a story to tell? I was murdering people and turning them into biscuits to protect my children. Oh dear. <laughs> Confessions of an Embittered Soul Due to the crisis of the war, the trial was delayed for five years, during which time both Leonardo and her son Giuseppe were held in prison. That doesn't seem very fair. I mean, I know, obviously, we know that i don't know if the son was involved i mean he was involved somehow but did he know probably he probably deserves to go to prison for at least five years but it does seem a bit unfair to hold people in prison for quite so long when they haven't been declared guilty of anything maybe some house arrest i mean i know they're murderers but what if they weren't then they spend five years in prison as innocents that doesn't seem very fair during this time, Leonardo tried to commit suicide, ranted and raved about her crimes, and composed a 700-page memoir. Yet even if she's confessing to her crimes, though, she hasn't been declared guilty by a judge or jury or whatever they do in Italy. So, I don't know, that doesn't seem, doesn't seem right. Her confessions of an embittered soul is not an easy source to find, much less in full English translation, since Italian authorities never intended for it to be published or sold, nor can it truly be trusted in all aspects given its author. Giuseppe was released after five years due to lack of evidence. So yeah, essentially that guy was in prison for five years, even though there wasn't really any evidence against him. So uh, that doesn't seem fair. And because of the confessions Leonardo made in her memoir, thoroughly and deliberately ex ex exculpating him. To this day, we do not know the extent to which Giuseppe was aware of his mother's crimes and whether he participated in the murders or knowingly participated in acts of cannibalism. He does not possess a past history and a rap sheet like his mother that would imply a disturbed mind. So, we're left to speculate what life with Leonardo was like for all those years and whether it imparted any serious lasting damage on her children. <laughs> kind of, how could it not? She's, how could it not? They're going to be messed up in a little way, maybe not into becoming criminals, but they're probably going to be a little bit broken. 
At the trial in June of 1946, the prosecution insisted that Leonardo wasn't a maddened cannibal but had just killed their victim, killed her victims to take their money. Leonardo insisted that she was making a blood tribute to protect her children. One of her major arguments was the murder of Signora Soavi, the schoolteacher, who yielded very little money. It's also rumored that during the trial, Leonardo was secretly taken to the morgue to demonstrate that she could indeed dismember a corpse in under 12 minutes. Holy shit, who are they testing that on? It's like, you know when you donate your body to science and you're like, oh my god, it's going to be used to like cure cancer or some shit like that. You know, that's what you think when you're donating your body to science. But really, they're taking you down to the morgue and they're having a serial killer see if you could be dissected in 12 minutes. Not really. Your body is used for useful things, but it's also not like what you might think. I think one of the big sources, they go to medical schools for students to practice, you know, surgery and chopping up and stuff that medical students do that I really want to think about. But there's definitely corpses that they use. And I think that's what happens if you donate your body to science. I'm, I'm donating all my organs. So I don't think, I, I mean, I'd, ideally I'd like to be frozen, to be honest. Uh, but I haven't set that up yet. So right now if I died, I, I would donate all my organs and then I guess my body wouldn't be much good for science. But I think, I don't know, donating my organs feels like a, a more of a short-term win. But I like the idea that my organs would be in someone else's body. I find that pretty cool. I mean, not literally, my, I don't find the idea like, oh, how exciting, my kidney's in someone else's body. I mean, that they get to have a relatively normal life because my kidney's inside their body. That I like. Donate your organs. Become an organ donor. Woo! Leonardo's 700-page memoir was also taken as evidence, but there had always been suspicion that Leonardo cooked the whole thing up with her defense team in order to pursue an insanity verdict. For one thing, it seems dubious that Leonardo, with a third-grade education, could have written a 700-page memoir all by herself. I don't know, I feel like 700-page memoir seems more likely if you're bad at writing, because if, it, if you were good at writing, you could keep it more succinct rather than crazy and rambling. Although, as far as I can tell, the Italian and the sentence structure is pretty shabby. In the end, the judge accepted the cannibal version of events and sentenced Leonardo to three years in a lunatic asylum and thereafter to 30 years imprisonment. But Leonardo never left the last house. She spent the next quarter of a century there. According to the nurses, she occasionally made pastries in the kitchens, but none of the other inmates dared eat them. That definitely sounds like an urban legend. Leonardo died of a brain hemorrhage aged 77 on October the 15th, 1970. May that rot in hell. Oh! Okay, I have to say, David, that feels a little harsh because I think she is insane. Um, the fact that she never got released from the mental hospital kind of implies that she got there, spent three years there, and they were like, no, 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 she is crazy. Or either she was putting on crazy for a very, very long time. I And the fact that she did kill that woman who just wasn't worth anything, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like you can just, like, I feel that the mental insanity excuse does in a way morally exculpate her a little bit obviously it's not right to murder in order to protect your children but in a practical sense i mean i don't want to like admit to crimes but like would i kill people to save my children allegedly yes <laughs> allegedly yes so if she genuinely believes that she is killing these people to protect her children, that is kind of a moral excuse. So while I'm not saying what she did was in any way correct or right or morally justified, maybe it was in her own mind. So I feel it's a bit hard to be like, yeah, may she rot in hell. Uh, she is just mentally disturbed. Anyway, uh, there's more. There's a twist. Okay, the twist. 
So on one hand, you've got a psychopathic cram cri uh, blah, 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 cannibal with a lifelong obsession with the occult. During a blood ritual to protect her son's life, spurred on by the ghostly apparition of her abusive mother, she brutally murdered and consumed three women. She made pastries of their congealed blood, and in one case made soup, soap of the fat, all of which she distributed to an unaware public. And she laid down an account of these crimes in an exhaustive detail, with interesting commentary for true crime writers to pick apart in a 700-page memoir that she wrote in prison. On the other hand, you've got the word of a notorious conwoman for most of this. Despite the bloodstains and possessions of the three women found in Leonardo's flat, there is no evidence beyond the murderer's own testimony that she cooked the blood into biscuits or boiled fat into soap. By the time of her trial, five years after her arrest, any pastries Leonardo gave out had long since been excreted into the sewers, and any bars of soap carved out of Virginia Cachopo's corpse would long since have gone swirling down the bathtub drain. Leonardo's criminal history shows theft, threats of violence, and fraud. She also practiced for years as a huckster who made money as a palm reader and a fortune teller for the more gullible people in her community. Oh, yeah. But again, if she genuinely believed, do people who do this genuine, genuinely believe that they're doing it, though? I don't think so. I think they know they're conning you because they don't really hear voices. I mean, maybe they do. In which case, they need to be on medication. Or like, you know, the automatic writing or the senses and stuff. They know they're conning you. They definitely know, because otherwise it wouldn't work. There wouldn't be a good con. There wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a good seance or whatever. It's all a con. So yeah, no, that very much morally speaks to her moral character. Um, yeah, I, now I'm coming around to the should she be rying in hell? I don't know, she seems pretty disturbed. She had conned her way into the confidence of the housewives of Correggio. She was, in short, a practiced and inveterate liar. It is possible that in her arrest and trial, Leonardo pulled off one of her greatest cons. She convinced a court of law, the wider Italian public, and generations of true crime readers of the most extraordinary and gruesome story, that she was the cannibal of Correggio, when in fact, she may have just been nothing more than an opportunistic murderer and a thief. Yeah, but the second woman had no money. You target someone who at least has money. I'm sure there's plenty of old spinsters who have money rather than kindergarten teachers with nothing. Why would she do this? Well, if the motive of the murders was money, it would have been likely that her son, Giuseppe, would not have gotten off the charges. There is even subtext in Leonardo's memoirs, which may imply it was Giuseppe who actually carried out the murders rather than a tiny middle-aged woman. By claiming a horrendous tale of lifelong insanity and putrid cannibalism, Leonardo threw up a massive smokescreen uh, that completely altered the focus of the trial. And even though it wasn't a blood ritual, this pack of lies was able to protect her son. The only solid argument against this theory is the murder of Francesca Clementina Sovi, whose murder yielded less than a tenth of the money of the other two murders. However, it is possible that Leonardo thought Sovi had more money. We must also remember the context of Leonardo being a fairly impoverished person with only a sideline in furniture and palm reading whose husband had abandoned her. And in the latter two murders, it was wartime and lots of people were suffering financially. From that perspective, 3,000 lira isn't half bad. Furthermore, it is possible that the smallness of the amount prompted the third, more ambitious murder of the much wealthier Virginia Cachopo, which happened only three weeks later. Wow, I didn't realize there was such a short time between the crimes. So either Leonardo was a deluded cannibal obsessed with the occult who would go down in history as Italy's answer to Hannibal Lecter, or she recognized the occult for what it was, a useful way to con people into doing what she wanted. Yeah, entirely possible. I mean, there's, yeah, there's no evidence against this, David, but there's also not a ton of evidence, like, for it. I mean... Yeah, they're just there's two potential stories, and we can't really know which one is true because we can't see inside ahead, and all the evidence is long gone. I have to say, I'm quite torn between them.
I do think she was pretty crazy. But I also, yeah, she does have that history of being a con woman. I have to say, in this one, I don't know. I mean, of course I don't know. But I I can't even, t- I don't even feel like I can take a particularly good guess. And she ended her life pulling off the most massive con job of all. She fooled a court, got her son off murder charges, and got to spend the rest of her life in an asylum rather than in prison or facing execution. And she transformed herself into an infamous folk legend, the last of which, given a pro- proclivity for narcissism, probably appealed to her. Cannibal or con artist, either way, this places her firmly in the annals of criminal history. I'll let you decide which story seems more plausible. Like I said, I don't know! Personally, having read through much of what she wrote, I think the thieving cow was full of and okay yeah okay well there you go david's read a lot more about this in researching this piece so okay yeah i guess that would nudge me slightly towards uh being a con woman and just a terrible terrible human being and do you think that makes for an anti-climax at the end of this video just wait till you realize that that means you've been conned by a fortune teller who died 50 years ago console yourself that my calling her legend into question is my way of spitting on the murderer's grave yes Dismembered Appendices Number 1. There is some reason to believe that the pl- plotline in Fight Club or Tyler Durden making luxury soaps from the discarded fatty stole from liposuction clinics was inspired by Leonardo's story. Number 2. Leonardo Cianciolini's mer- official moniker as a serial killer is actually the soap maker of Correggio. And given that she only made soap from one of her three victims, I feel that people have missed the forest for the trees when naming her. What about the cannibalism, the blood biscuits, the fact that according to Leonardo, she fed human blood to her friend's family and ate some herself. Possibly she also ate human flesh for dinner. Hence, I've given this video what I feel to be a more appropriate title to her crimes, the cannibal of Correggio. And hopefully, you get some extra points for alliteration. Yeah, I mean, it is a nice title, isn't it? It's a good title. And she was into the flesh-eating thing was more. Number three. It's quite likely that Leonardo deserves the title of Italy's first modern serial killer since the country was unified in 1871. The title of first modern Italian serial killer, regardless of gender, belongs to another candidate, however, especially if we count the murders carried out by people in organized crime. Number four. When researching the story of a con woman posing as a palm reader and fortune teller, taking advantage of the naivety of three women and luring them to their deaths, I kept thinking back to the lyrics from Tim Minchin's song, Storm which i'll leave you with today i don't know tim Minchin and i don't know the song storm but here we go so i'm not i'm not gonna sing it obviously <laughs> i don't mean to bore you but there's no such thing as an aura reading auras is like reading minds or tea leaves or star signs or meridian lines these people aren't applying a skill they're either lying or mentally ill i mean preach timmy that is spot on when it comes to the story of leonardo Cianciulli, either lying or mentally ill pretty much sums it up Please stop paying these people. Good lord, yes. If you're thinking, oh, after this, I'm going to go see my palm reader. How about no? How about you don't? And uh, you realize that it's all a bunch of hogwash nonsense. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, have been your host, Simon. Thank you, David, for putting this today. Guest, author. I mean, regular guest author, in addition to Callum. Hope it helped me get these episodes out more regularly which i know you guys like because i think i went a week without publishing one on youtube and people were like on my twitter like all over the show like simon where is it where's the guy come on give me the casual criminalist fact boy well if you feel that passionate about it please if you're listening to this as a podcast go over to wherever you get your podcasts and leave it a stellar review because you love it and i know you do hopefully please Uh, And if you're watching this on YouTube, use that like button, make sure you're subscribed, and I will see you next time.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.